For this evening, I'd like to continue by asking you a series of questions. Firstly, how many, anyone can say, how many books in the Bible are there? 66. 66. And how many of them are in the New Testament? 27. How many of them are known as the Gospels? And they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what does the word gospel mean? Good news. So, in the books that we know as the Gospels, we read simply about Jesus' life on earth, his death, and of course his resurrection. All major parts in God's plan of salvation, which is, I suppose, the good news. And so, yeah, it makes sense to call them the Gospels. So if you look at it simply, we only need those four books out of the 66. After all, we want to spread the Gospel, the good news. The standout moments are in these four books, so much so that they're even given the title of the Gospels. What use is there then in the other 64 books? Good question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> you know that song that lots of us learn to remember the books of the Bible? Do you remember the little intro that, that came before you start reading off the books? There are 66 books in God's holy word Telling the story of Jesus, my Lord The books of the Bible I love so well The books of the Bible I now will tell 66 books, all of them telling the story of Jesus our Lord. Not just those four at the beginning of the New Testament. And so, for the foreseeable future, I would like to work my way through God's holy word, looking at each book, either individually or as part of a small group, and see what it can teach us or what part it plays in the story of Jesus my Lord, also known as the Gospel story. A story that didn't begin in a manger and end 33 years later, but one that began before the dawn of time and which stretches into eternity. Buckle up everyone, get comfortable. It's going to be a long but hopefully exciting ride. And that is the reason why I asked um, Joel to read 2 Timothy 3, because we are in those times, I think, when all those sorts of people are around. And the last couple of verses say... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I, for one, would like to be thoroughly equipped. So this evening I'd like to begin what should be a Colossus series by looking at the book of Genesis. And I'll quickly run through the series of events in Genesis to make sure we're all on the same page and know the time frame that we're talking about this evening. We obviously begin with God creating the whole world, including, of course, man, whom he made in his own image and gave dominion over all creation. We then have the fall of man, when Eve was tempted by the serpent in the garden to eat fruit from the only tree that God had asked them not to eat of. Their disobedience resulted in their expulsion from the garden, and as God had warned them, death. We then meet their two sons, Cain and Abel, one of whom kills the other in the first act of murder. After a long list of genealogies, we see how wicked man has become, and God, 
As a result, floods the earth, saving only Noah and his family, and of course, the animals. The next milestone is the building of the Tower of Babel, which resulted in God introducing different languages into the world, making it more difficult to communicate, and fragmenting the population into lots of smaller groups rather than one big group. Our next major player is Abram, who has pro- promised descendants that will outnumber the stars, starting with Isaac, who is almost sacrificed by his father. Isaac goes on to have two children of his own, Esau and Jacob. Jacob steals his father's blessing from his brother and goes on to have twelve sons of his own, who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. One of the sons was Joseph, who we know went through all sorts of different situations before working for Pharaoh and reuniting his family. And that was a whistle-stop tour of Genesis. A lot goes on in this book, as you can see. The question this evening is, though, where is the gospel in all of this? People need to know that they are in danger before they ask to be rescued. You don't call the fire brigade until you see the fire. When life is going swimmingly, everything seems to be falling into place and you find yourself not wanting for anything. If you were to be told that you needed to call on Jesus and be saved, you would at best ignore it and at worst scoff and laugh at it, laugh it off, because really your life is pretty much perfect as it is and the last thing you need is to be saved. But time passes and life goes on and things start to crumble. Life isn't going quite as perfectly. You're no longer satisfied. Things aren't going swimmingly anymore, for whatever reason. This, I think, is the moment that you start to smell the smoke or feel the heat of the fire. You're still not in a position to phone for the fire brigade, but you know that something's not right. That's when you turn your TV off, get up off your settee, and go and search out the source of the smoke or the heat. Where is it coming from? Why is it here? Why is this happening? In life, your life is falling apart and you start to look around. What's the source of my unhappiness? What is this yearning in my heart? Why am I always filling my life with dangerous and fickle things and people? And you search for answers. And this is why Genesis is such a massive part of the gospel story. Because Genesis answers those questions. Genesis opens the door and shows us the fire. The source of all that smoke and heat. And then, and only then, when we see the fire, will we call out to be rescued. Genesis shows us that we are sinners, born that way, with nothing we can do to help ourselves. Genesis shows us that we are in need of a rescuer. We are in need of a saviour. And more than showing us the origin of sin, and showing us that we need a saviour, Genesis also tells us that there will come a saviour. In Genesis 3, verse 14 to 15, after Eve tells God that it was the serpent who had tricked her into eating the fruit, God says this, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you ahead and you shall bruise his heel. A promise from God, heard by Adam, Eve and the serpent, that from the woman, from Eve, would come a man who would destroy the serpent. This must have been an amazing moment for Adam and Eve. Let's just think 
for a moment about what has happened in, I assume, a relatively short amount of time. So they're there, the two of them, in the perfect land, having dominion over the perfectly created animals, breathing perfect air, experiencing a perfect temperature all around them, beneath a perfect sky, everything just perfect. Then the serpent sidles up to Eve in her perfect world and simply questions what God has really said about what trees they can and can't eat from. God said not to eat of that tree because they'll die. Well, why on earth would they consider eating from it? Who would want to die and leave or no longer get to experience this perfect paradise? Accepting that rule, that one and only rule, was a no-brainer. Until death is no longer the result of eating of the tree. The serpent says that actually we will be as wise, be as, wise as God if we eat from it. We will be like him. From this point of view, eating of that tree will no longer ruin perfection, but enhance it and add to it. But we all know what happens when you add to perfection. And so with the promise of being made like God, she reaches out and pulls a piece of fruit off the tree, gives some to Adam and they eat of it. And the moment they do that, things change. This perfect, blissful paradise that they are living in is immediately marred by the realisation that they are standing in it completely naked. How shameful. Shame. That's new. Regret. Never felt that before. Embarrassment. I don't like it. Adam and Eve could see that they had made a fatal mistake and when God came and called out to them, such was their shame at being naked that they couldn't even pretend that they didn't suddenly know that they were. They fashioned for themselves clothes out of leaves to hide their nakedness in the presence of God. And as if he didn't already know, he asks, Why are you hiding yourselves? How do you know that you're naked? And then the blame game starts. Adam says he only ate of it because Eve told him to. And Eve only ate of it because the serpent told her to. Things are looking bleak for the pair. Added to these new feelings of sh- adding to these new feelings of shame, regret and embarrassment or an avalanche of other as-yet-unexperienced emotions. Fear, resentment, cowardice, trepidation, a sense of foreboding, of the world crashing down around you, despair, hopelessness. But wait, what is that that God's saying to the serpent? From Eve's seed will come a man who will destroy the serpent, a glimmer of hope. In this world that from the... in this world that from the moment the fruit passed their lips seemed to dim and get darker, the more God spoke, a sliver of light. All is not lost, there is still hope. When God turns his attention from the serpent to Adam and Eve in turn, they realise the full extent of their consequences of their actions. But there's, sti- there's still that small pocket of hope that they hold like a talisman. From Eve's seed will come a man who will fix everything that we've broken, and we can go back to our perfect lives in a perfect world. While God's promise was a bright light in the darkness for Adam and Eve, for the serpent it was quite the opposite. Victory is mine. I have succeeded in ruining God's perfect world. I have destroyed the perfect relationship he had with these people he loves so much. I am more cunning than God. I can always find a way to ruin his plans. I am the... Hang on. What is he saying? It's not over. God, as always, has a plan. A plan to defeat the serpent. 
The victory that he was revelling in is suddenly extinguished. It seems he's won the battle but not the war on this occasion. Priority number one now then, do everything possible to stop this promise coming to fruition. Adam and Eve knew that their redeemer would come from Eve's seed. And so when Eve gives birth to her first son, she names him Cain and she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. It's possible that she believed that this manifestation of her seed was the very man who would fulfil God's promise. And so you can imagine their excitement. She then had another son who she names Abel, who plays a big part in Cain's future path. Far from being the Messiah that his parents thought he might be, he actually becomes the perpetrator of the first ever act of murder. This comes to pass when both Cain and Abel come before the Lord with a sacrifice. And this is where, once again, our gospel detectors should be starting to go off. Cain, as the Bible puts it, was a tiller of the ground, a fruit and veg kind of man, and that was what he brought as a sacrifice for God. Abel, on the other hand, was a shepherd, and so brought the firstborn of his flock as a sacrifice for God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice of the lamb, but not Cain's sacrifice of the fruit. In isolation like that, I think it seems a bit mean. After all, Cain gave what he had and Abel gave what he had. These were two jobs that became necessary after the fall of man. The ground was no longer perfect and so needed to be worked to reap the food. And the animals were no longer under the control of man and so the sheep needed to be tended to to protect them. Both necessary and important jobs. Why then did God accept one and not the other? Well, I'll put it this way. Cain brought the produce from the cursed ground that he had acquired by the work of his hands. Abel brought the best and richest part of the best animal he could. He brought a blood sacrifice. And so we learn, so early on in the gospel story, that God will not accept the best efforts of man. Hard work, toil and labour do not satisfy God. He requires a blood sacrifice. Should Cain have known this? Well, this isn't the first time that God has favoured a blood sacrifice over the fruit of the land. Let's go back a bit to just after Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit. They covered themselves in leaves to cover their shame. But God instead, we're told in verse 21 of chapter 3, made tunics of skin and clothed them. He shed blood so that he could cover them, to cover their shame. So angry was Cain that God had accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his own, that when he was alone with his brother in the field, he rose up against his brother and killed him. So far already in the first three chapters of the whole Bible, we've seen how our massive problem of sin originated. We've seen that God has promised that a redeemer will come from the woman's seed. We've seen that God requires a blood sacrifice and we're about to see God show grace to the world's first murderer. When God confronts Cain about the murder of his brother, he says to him, Why, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Cain is scared that this curse that God has put on him will, re will result in people wanting to kill him and cries out to God. And God, in his mercy and grace, declares that anyone who harms him will be harmed sevenfold, 
and sets a mark on him so that he will never be killed by another's hand. When I gave the rundown of what happens in Genesis 1, I kind of brushed over, in Genesis, sorry, I kind of brushed over the fact that there are a lot of genealogies, but they're actually a really important part of our gospel story, even if they are boring and easy to read, boring to read and easy to skip over. God said that a redeemer would come from the woman's seed, and it wasn't Cain, it wasn't Abel, and it wasn't even Seth. Neither was it any of the other, however many children Eve had. And so we need to watch carefully the family tree to try and spot him. Obviously, Eve is the mother of all humanity, but the Bible highlights for us the people that we need to keep an eye on. The Bible says that each person had many sons and daughters, but only mentions one, who is obviously the one we need to keep our eye on. So Eve had Seth, who had Enosh, who has Canaan, who has Mahalalel, who has Jared, who has Enoch, who has Methuselah, who has Lamech, who has Noah. We're all obviously familiar with Noah, and without going into too much detail into his most famous of stories, we see again that the punishment for sin is death, but there is always grace with God. Now, God obviously saw it fit that we know about three of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and also of their descendants. It's important that we know about the descendants of Ham and Japheth and what they got up to because it gives us some context for the things that happen in the future, such as the events at the Tower of Babel and Nineveh. But it's Shem's line that is most important in the lineage of Christ. Noah, who had Shem, who had Arphaxad, who had Salah, who had Eber, who had Peleg, who had Ru, who had Sarah, who had Nahor, who had Terah, who had Nahor, Haran, and Abram, later to be known as Abraham. And Abraham is a major character in the Gospel story. On a number of different occasions, Abraham hears from God that he will have many descendants, descendants that will outnumber the dust of the earth if it was possible to count them, descendants that will outnumber the stars. But as Abraham and Sarah grow older and remain childless, they begin to question with one another whether it's possible for Sarah to bear a child. And so, with the intention of helping God along, Sarah suggests that perhaps God intends for Abraham to have a child with Sarah through her maidservant, Hagar. In other words, that Abraham would have a child with Hagar, who was much younger and fertile, <coughs> and the child would be adopted by Sarah. This is exactly what happened, but not quite as smoothly as Sarah would as smoothly, as Sarah was immediately jealous of Hagar. Then God appears to Abraham again in chapter 17 and says this, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting 
possession, and I will be their God. Three more times God assures and promises Abraham that he will have many descendants. I will multiply you exceedingly. You will be a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. He's really drilling it in. And to help Abraham remember, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah because it will be from her that these generations will come, not from Hagar or anyone else. Something else worth noting from this passage of scripture is in verse 6 where God says that kings will come from Abraham. Abraham has and does live his life rubbing shoulders with kings such as Pharaoh, Melchizedek and Abimelech. Later on in the book in chapter 27 when Isaac blesses Jacob he says let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be lord of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you which strips with regal expectation. Jacob then goes on to bless Judah using royal language in chapter 47 saying, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And in between these chapters we have the story of Joseph, whose dreams are interpreted to mean that his family will bow down to him and that he will rule over them. There is a royal expectation from the descendants of Abraham, one of whom, the one everyone is waiting for, who will be the king of kings. Something we'll have to remember from this passage of scripture for the future as well is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. God makes Abraham uh, three groups of promises. Firstly, a great posterity, a future and a land in which for it to live. Secondly, justification. God is going to act for Abraham and Abraham is going to turn away from himself and allow God to work in his life. And thirdly, a promise that the blessings God has poured on this one man isn't reserved for him, but actually through him we are all blessed. God instructs Abraham to introduce male circumcision as a physical sign of the covenant that has been made between the two, something that will be important as the story unfolds. And finally this evening, I'd like to look at at Genesis chapter 22, when God tests Abraham and tells him to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. Just so we're clear, God is asking Abraham not only to sacrifice his son, which is bad enough, but to sacrifice the son that he has waited decades for, the one whom he was promised by God. The one from whom God had promised would come innumerable descendants. But Abraham, the faithful servant that he was, the man who had had so much experience in both following God's commands to the letter and also including his own interpretation of God's commands, knew that he was best to do exactly as God has promised, commanded, sorry. And so he rose, gathered firewood, a knife, fire, and set off with his son, to the top of a mountain in the land of Moriah and prepared to sacrifice his beloved son. Isaac asks his father as they make their way up the mountain where the the lamb for the sacrifice was. Abraham replies with these words, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Or as Terence told us on Thursday, it could be translated, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. What unbelievable faith Abraham had. 
He made an altar on top of the mountain and bound his son to it, raised his knife above his head, ready to plunge it into the chest of his son, when God calls out to him again. One huge sigh of relief from Isaac, Abraham and everyone who ever hears the story for the first time. Abraham's faith has gone through the fire of testing and come out the other end as refined gold. He was willing to sacrifice his son for God, but God didn't want him to. So instead, he provides a substitute sacrifice. After hearing God's voice, Abraham looks up and finds a ram caught in a thicket by its horns and uses this animal instead as an offering to God, and God is pleased with it. God's requirement has been satisfied, and Isaac goes free. He's untied, unharmed, and whole. This is the Gospel. We've seen in this book how sin entered our world and tainted the lives of every person who has ever lived. We've seen how God deals with sin. We've seen the punishment for sin. We've also seen that there's always grace with God. We've seen that God requires a blood sacrifice, that man's works and deeds mean nothing to God. We've seen that God made a promise that a saviour would come. And through Abraham, we've seen that God is faithful to keep his promises. And now we've seen that God will provide a substitute sacrifice. Abraham even named the mountain where this all happened. The Lord will provide. And he will. And he has. For Isaac, his substitute was found in a ram in a thicket of thorns. For us, our substitute is found in a lamb wearing a crown of thorns. For Isaac, he escaped death for the moment as the ram was sacrificed on the altar. For us, we escape death forever as the lamb was sacrificed on the cross. Isaac walked free from the ropes that bound him because a ram was provided by God to take his place. We walk free from the sin that bound us because a son was provided by God to take our place. God's own son, Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb of God. This evening, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, then believe me when I say that however good, bad or mediocre your life is at the moment, you are tainted with sin because of what happened all those years ago. Adam and Eve had to wait to meet the saviour of the world after they fell, so long in fact that they never did meet him. You don't have to wait, and shouldn't wait, a moment longer to meet with you a saviour. He has already paid the price that you owe for your sin, and all you need to do is repent, turn your thinking and your life around to be in line with God's, and accept his wonderful gift of a perfect substitute. If you do believe this evening, then remember that this is just the beginning of God's plan, and that plan includes you. God had you in mind when he fashioned this plan, and as his plan for the world stretches into eternity, you are a part of it. Like Joseph was given a glimpse of his future from God through his dreams, we are given a glimpse of our past, present and future through God's word, and I hope that you'll join me as we continue through it, seeing how it all comes together. Amen.